You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, well, baptism, a non-controversial subject. As you know, we're going backwards. Uh, Pastor Pylon took the Lord's Supper last week, and I got baptism at my request. I wanted to do baptism because he did baptism in the confession, so he was gracious enough to uh, let us swap. And I said those who are OCD will probably drive you insane because we're, we skipped these two questions, but that's the reason why I asked him. So baptism, the first question, 94, what is baptism? It gives us a definition. Baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost does signify and seal our ingrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. So that's a pretty, pretty succinct and biblical answer in terms of defining the sacrament. And the first thing we consider is this word baptize, which has been a source of uh, contention and debate over the years. But the verb itself doesn't provide us with any information whatsoever as to the manner of baptism. Some would argue, well, it means to immerse. Others would argue, no, it means to pour. But the word itself doesn't mean anything in particular. It means those things both at the same time. It can refer to washing, to sprinkling, to pouring, all with a view to cleansing. So if anybody argues from the word itself, they have no ground to stand on. Either side, paedo-baptists or believers-baptists. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first baptize before dinner. That's the word used there. Wash, that's all it meant. Wash his hands. Or how about this one? When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, baptize. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing, baptizing, of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't immerse my dining couch to wash it. I think that'd be very difficult. So the word can be used simply in terms of washing. That's it. There's nothing in the word itself that gives us an indication of the manner of baptism. As king and head of the church, Christ himself instituted baptism as a sacrament under the New Testament. Back when we were talking about sacraments in general, this was important. A sacrament is something instituted by the king and head of the church because he alone is the one who's able to institute them. Foot washing is a wonderful thing, and it is a a symbol of serving one another. But he did not institute foot washing as a sacrament. So this is clearly one of the most important elements of the sacrament, is that Christ instituted it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that's how we make disciples. We bring them into the church solemnly and publicly and formally by the sacrament of baptism. And you'll notice in that verse that he'll say we make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them. 
So a disciple is somebody who is baptized into the triune name and then being discipled in everything Christ has taught, the whole counsel of God. And the promise is that if you do that, if you baptize them and teach them the whole counsel of God, Christ will be with you. If you don't teach them the whole counsel of God, the promise is null and void. He will not be with you. And you can see many places today where the whole counsel of God is not taught and in fact countered by man's wisdom and the promise does not hold true. Do you have a question, Sue? <laughs> Christ did not baptize. His, just, his apostles baptized. <clears throat> okay. Is this related to the mitzvah that the Jews did before they went to Sabbath worship? They would wash, but not according to divine warrant. Does that make sense? In the Old Testament, they didn't have a, a, a law that required the washing, but they would wash. Now, the priests would wash before they went into the temple and so forth, but that's not the same thing. Does that make sense? They would, use, they would use washings in their ceremonial worship, but there was, no, um, there was no requirement according to law that the Jews in general would wash or be baptized until John came along. Yeah, they might have done that, and, and I would, you're probably right, I would not argue against that, but you'll not find that required by law, by the Mosaic administration, yeah. They did use washings um, for various reasons and at various times, but you can't find in the Mosaic Decalar, the Mosaic law, a commandment that they had to wash like that. Like this, this is a, this is a commandment, you have to be baptized. John? That is to say that the, the Jewish people that they're speaking to would understand this as a, a cleansing and a setting apart of themselves for, for God. They understand, yeah, they understand the concept of washing. You're right, cleansing, exactly. Especially the priests, they had to wash before they did their priestly administrations. <clears throat> okay. Baptism with water was used previously by the Jews in receiving proselytes, but not by law. Nice segue, Sue. That was great. Only when God sent John the Baptist was there divine warrant and institution for using it. So John was sent in preparation for the Messiah, and he brought a, a baptism of repentance in preparing the Jews for the coming of the Messiah. Renounce the world, turn from sin, look for the Messiah, he's here. So John was preparing the Jews for the coming of Christ. Um, there is no essential, but there is a historical difference with John's baptism. Maybe that was your question. Now you see the frown on your face. Both of them, John's baptism and our baptism, had the same visible sign, the washing with water, signifying the same blessings. You're going to trust in the coming Messiah. We trust in the, the risen Christ. And it's the same blessings that are involved in Christ. John's was administered under the old covenant. 
and the other, our baptism, was, is administered under the new covenant. So there's a historical difference, a covenantal difference. John's baptism was confined to Israel, whereas our baptism is extended to all nations. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation can come and be baptized if they profess their faith. John's was not in the triune name, did not admit to the new covenant church, and was only preparatory. So that's the difference between John's baptism and our baptism, the triune name. But John's baptism did point to Christ. So in Christ, it's the same blessing. I hope that makes sense. We don't have to get too hung up on this because we're looking at the triune name baptism, not so much John's. John? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so, because they still had circumcision. So it wasn't, they weren't being admitted into anything. No, it was just preparation. Right. Right, but it was <clears throat> for the coming Messiah. And so it was a looking to the Messiah. And in so doing, they receive or it signified the blessings that are inherent in the Messiah. Right. It wasn't just some washing for no reason. It was in the Messiah. Okay, so baptism signifies our ingrafting into Christ by the Spirit who joins and unites us to him by faith. This is what is signified in baptism. It introduces the parties baptized into an ecclesiastical relationship with the true and the living God. You become a covenant member by your profession of faith, by the promise of God. You're trusting in Christ. And this formally and publicly signifies that you're in this relationship with the triune God. You come under the authority of the triune name. So you cannot be a Christian unless you're a Trinitarian. You have to be a Trinitarian to be a Christian. Unitarians are not Christians. They only believe in one God, the Father. They don't believe in the Son and the Holy Spirit being equal with God the Father. Um, John Gerstner told a story about an elder in a Presbyterian church. Wonderful man, faithful elder, conscientious, uh, raised a good family. But he realized later in his life as an elder that he had been baptized as a young man in a Unitarian church. And when he realized that he had not been baptized in the triune name, he asked the pastor, will you please baptize me as an elder in the church? But he recognized rightly that he had not been baptized lawfully. It symbolizes the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whereby we are united to Christ. It signifies and it seals like the king with his ring, he will seal the decree, right, with the, with the hot wax. He'll seal it, which authorizes the decree as coming from his throne. It signifies and seals the parties as partakers of all the benefits of the covenant of grace. It's a divine authorization, a divine ratification that this particular person has the mark of God upon him. And it signifies all the benefits. Now, of course, those benefits are going to be enjoyed only by faith in Christ. So somebody can be baptized and not have faith in Christ, and it won't signify the benefits spiritually. It'll actually be a curse. 
Simon Magus is an example. By sealing the covenant, it conveys to the covenant beneficiaries the grace intended for them. The covenant beneficiaries, those who are truly united to Christ. It signifies and seals the truth of our engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. When you're baptized, it's as if God is taking you and setting you apart, and you are to be holy and only the Lord's. It is a solemn rite which sets you apart. It's a little bit like analogously to your wedding, your wedding ring, which identifies you as being exclusively given to your spouse. You know, that's what it's supposed to signify. Some people aren't true to it, we know, many people in our day and age, but that's what it's supposed to mean. I'm taken, I'm committed. It's a formal initiation into the New Covenant Church. It is a badge of allegiance. Of course, when a Muslim becomes a Christian, or at least if a Muslim is discussing Christianity with somebody, that is frowned upon, but it's somewhat tolerated. But when the Muslims get really angry and violent is when they're baptized, because that's the point of no return. When you're baptized, you have the badge of allegiance, and they'll cut off your head. And it's a distinguishing mark. You're distinguished from the rest of the unbelieving world. God marks you out. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. See, this is the whole difference, I think, between the Baptistic understanding of baptism and the Reformed understanding of baptism. When our Baptist brothers want to dedicate their children... We admire their intent. What a wonderful thing that you, you understand these children and you want to give them to God. What a wonderful thing. But we understand baptism as God taking someone and making them his own. So dedication is man's desire to honor God. Baptism is supposed to be God's intent to bless and to set apart man. Big difference. Godward focus, manward focus. So this is baptism, difference in John's with triune and these various significations. Any questions on this page? A lot of this is non-controversial. Melissa? Right. Right. Yes. Primarily, it's something God does. Secondarily, it is especially in a professing believer, it is my choosing Christ, devoting myself to Christ, and so forth. It's God giving me an opportunity to express my faith in Christ. But that's secondary. It is primarily God doing something to you. With a baby, what happens is that they're making a vow on behalf of the covenant child. So that covenant child is obliged to grow up and serve the living God. Yes, John? Understanding that it relates to circumcision, and if, if God felt comfortable having circumcision be done on the children and setting them apart, then the why then he would he doesn't change. It's, it's my problem. I'm, it's my problem of being offended, not God's problem of setting apart children. Yeah, good segue. 
That's the next question. Good job. You're exactly right. <laughs> The water signifies the cleansing virtue of Christ's blood and spirit. Christ's blood cleanses meritoriously and takes away the guilt of sin. There we have the judicial element. His blood cleanses us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So that cleansing virtue of the blood of Christ. You're cleansed of your guilt. Christ's spirit cleanses efficaciously and takes away gradually the stain of sin in our sanctification. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this idea... That by sprinkling and pouring water, baptism signifies the application of Christ's blood and spirit to the soul. Both the guilt and the power of sin are dealt with in our salvation. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, not, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that's represented in this marvelous sacrament of baptism. As the water cleanses the body, this is what Peter basically says, so the blood and spirit of Christ cleanses from the guilt and pollution of sin. In the triune name then obliges you and I as Christians to be devoted to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as our God forever. We're triune people. And this is one of those things that we need to be teaching and training people, baptizing them in the triune name and teaching them. What does that mean in the triune name? Well, first of all, it means that these are three persons in one Godhead, the same in substance. In their essence, they're one. But there's three personalities, three consciousnesses. And I don't understand that, but I believe it because the Bible teaches it. <clears throat> These three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have the sole right to our worship and obedience, and our hope of salvation is in them. At the same time, it signifies that the Trinity will faithfully bestow all the blessings of the covenant, His faithfulness. I will be their God, and they will be or shall be my people. That is the overarching promise of Scripture, right there. I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. So everything in salvation aims at that goal. And you'll find that in Revelation 21 or 22, maybe twice. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. Any questions on this signification before we move on? We are getting to the, the infant baptism stuff. The real nitty gritty. Okay. Question 95, to whom is baptism to be administered? And the one thing about this question, both in the shorter and the larger, is the fact that it always starts off with a negative. It doesn't answer the question right off the bat. It says who are not to be baptized, which is interesting to me. Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. There you have believer's baptism. So we are believer's baptists. Yeah, believer's baptists. We just happen to be pedo-baptists as well. But the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. 
All right, let's talk about this. So the seals of the covenant, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're not to be applied to anyone outside of the covenant of grace. So that's what it means. If you haven't professed your faith in Christ, you're not to be baptized as an adult. The privileges and benefits of the covenant are not to be sealed to those outside of the visible church. A profession of faith in Christ and obedience to him are evidences of membership in the covenant. Okay? So baptism then solemnly admits the parties baptized into the membership of the visible church. They're already in the covenant. I think this is important. The believer hears the promise of Christ, responds in faith, he's in the covenant. And what baptism does is visibly marks him out then as being a member of the covenant and in the visible church. The infants of a believer, as will argue, by virtue of their birth under a believing parent or parents, also is in the covenant, and the baptism solemnly and publicly admits them into the visible church. Some deny the necessity of baptism, Quakers, for example. Others stress that it's absolutely necessary, the Roman Catholic understanding, baptismal regeneration. If somebody is having a baby and the doctors think the baby is going to perish physically, they'll try to make the baby crown early so they can baptize it before it dies. That's how serious they take it. It's a great sin, we believe, to despise or neglect the ordinance contra the Quakers. Yet salvation is not inseparably tied to it contra the Roman Catholic tradition. Rather, we say to despise or neglect baptism is to defy Christ who commands it and to slight the privileges and benefits of the covenant. So it's very important. It is a great sin to despise it, to neglect it. But that doesn't mean you're going to be kept out of heaven. You might do it out of ignorance or some other reason. Abraham was justified before circumcision. He didn't need circumcision to go to heaven. Cornelius was justified before being baptized. He didn't have to have baptism to go to heaven. But it's very important. Baptism confirms our right to the covenant, whereas God's promise grants the believers that right. I hope you understand that difference. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. So that's the idea. It's for those in the covenant. Any questions before we go on to children, Rob? Yes. Yes. In extraordinary situations, if you have either a quorum of the session or an evangelist, you know, if you're evangelizing an unchurched, unbelieving people group and you're out there and you have that authority, you can do that. But in all regular situations, it's to be done in the public worship of God, in the gathered assembly, by a minister of the gospel. Yeah. It still has to be a minister of the gospel, whoever, wherever it is. You just can't go out and baptize somebody in your bathtub. That's what happened to me. I was baptized by my Sunday school teacher in a bathtub. So, and it wasn't really baptism. 
You know what I mean? I mean, that, but I, I didn't know any better. We didn't know any better. We were in a young, charismatic church, and it's kind of like the wild, wild west. Anything went, you know? So, so if any of you have weird backgrounds, we can share stories together. <laughs> weird stuff. Our standards say that infants of believers are to be baptized. <clears throat> These infants are set apart by God as covenant members by birth. Now, why do we say that? Paul says the unbelieving husband is made holy, set apart, because of his, holy, because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy, set apart, because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy, set apart. So in some sense, what Paul is saying is that these children of believer or believers are set apart for God. Even our Baptist brothers understand the the importance of this. They dedicate their children, set them apart somehow. So they're set apart by God as covenant members by birth. And there are basically two pillars upon which the practice of infant baptism rests. These two pillars. If either one of these or both of them are knocked out from underneath us, let's become Baptists. So we're going to go through these two pillars and try to persuade ourselves again from the scriptures that this is a valid practice. In fact, it has been the prevailing practice throughout church history. The Baptistic understanding is authorizing the covenant benefits to his people. Paul says in Romans 4.11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So you can see when he describes this Old Testament rite, It is a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Faith in who? Faith in Christ. The only way to receive the imputed righteousness of God's Son. So that sign of circumcision was a seal of faith in Christ, of salvation in Jesus. That's what he says right there. And Abraham is the paradigm for all believers, whether in the Old Testament or the New. The father of all who believe. So baptism and circumcision, while they're different signs, the cutting off of the foreskin and the washing with water, they're both seals of the same covenant. So in fact, the one replaces the other. Baptism replaces circumcision as a sign and a seal of the covenant. Circumcision is no longer in in force, partly because of the inclusiveness of the new covenant. Previously, it was applied only to males. The women were included, represented by the males, but only males could bear the sign. Now the sign is applied to all. Also, the bloody, covenant, the bloody sign is no longer necessary. The blood has been shed. 
So now we have the washing. So they're both seals of the same covenant. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, Christian. You were circumcised, whether or not it was in your body or not. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Not his physical circumcision, but he was cut off from the land of the living at the cross. That's the ultimate circumcision. So you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, crucified, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there Paul is very comfortable using circumcision and baptism in the same breath. There is this correspondence between them. There is this equivalency between them. Circumcision signified and sealed the work of regeneration. Baptism signifies and seals the work of regeneration. They're both seals of the same covenant. Since circumcision was applied to old covenant infants, its New Testament equivalent ought to be applied to new covenant infants. That's the first pillar, the identification between these two uh, sacraments, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, let me stop and see if there are questions. Julia? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then my second question is, um, when is the first instance of credo or you know strictly believers' baptism, not credo baptism, being applied to believers in history? Is it with the Mennonites and you know the um, Anabaptists in no fifteen hundred? I would think. So. You mean, are you talking about when is believers' baptism? Yeah. In, when, did, when did people start saying, yeah. "I'm not going to baptize my infants anymore"? Right. Right. I would think it's the Anabaptists at the Reformation because they would say, well, the infant baptism was null and void. It's not explicitly stated in Scripture, so we're going to baptize. And they were, it's a kind of a pejorative term. Our godly Baptist brothers today would not want to be called Anabaptists. Um, but what happened back then was they would baptize them again, Anabaptists. Yeah. Now, before that, there may have been some errant groups, but... The prevailing view was infant baptism. Yeah. They were the first widespread group. Yeah. Right. And again, as I said, right now, it is the prevailing view in the United States. I mean, pedo baptism is a minority. John? Yeah, um, the great Augustine, I think, fell prey to that error. Um, He was the greatest theologian the church has seen, I think, but even he was uh, subject to errors, and I think that was one of them. So I don't know a whole lot of 200 AD, but I do know that there was some of that being filtered around, especially because of Augustine. Yeah. Sue? Yeah, as a seal, you know, what we understand the sacraments to do is that they're primarily God doing something to and for man. So 
when the baptism is applied, biblically speaking, it is God's action sealing, authorizing, ratifying the benefits of the covenant, which includes regeneration. No, that's a good follow-up question. That's not what we're saying. When the child is baptized, he's set apart. It is a sign of regeneration so that when he comes of age, we expect God to follow up that sign with the reality of regeneration. But it doesn't always work that way. And even believers' baptism, right? There are some adults, Simon Magus, who claim to be Christians, claim to be regenerated, they're baptized, and it turns out he wasn't really regenerated. So it's supposed to be a sign and seal of regeneration for God's chosen people. Just like the supper is a sign of, of Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul. Well, there are some who take that supper who don't know Christ. So it's not a sign of spiritual nourishment to the soul for them. It's a curse. Some of you have died, he says in 1 Corinthians 11. So unbelievers or hypocrites can take the signs. They're not supposed to, but they can. Infants, what we believe is that the efficacy of the sign is not tied to the moment of application. What does that mean? Well, it means that God can give the sign and then years later follow that sign up with what it really signifies. I can give you an example, not of that sign, but there was a farmer in New England who heard one of my heroes, John Flavel. The farmer was born in England. When he was a boy, a young teenager, he heard John Flavel preach a sermon. John Flavel was a Puritan. He preached wonderful sermons. He moved to New England, never attended church. The farmer was 90 years old. That sermon came to mind, and he was converted. Now, When he preached the sermon, it was truth, but it wasn't applied until 75 years later. You see the difference? The sermon was true, it declared the truth, and God, the efficacy of that sermon was not tied to the moment of preaching. 75 years later, God made good on that sermon in the heart of that man. Same with baptism. That child's baptized, 15 years old, comes and professes faith. And God makes good. That's when the reality comes to fruition. Because the the sacrament is a visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, which God can give later. The sign is still true. It just, it came 15 years later. So the efficacy of of the sacrament, the efficaciousness, the effectiveness of it, is not tied to the moment of application. Does that make sense? Okay. So then, in your example, Yeah, he has made good. God has made good on that baptism. That's when the sign and the application come. That's what we, we can see. Now, maybe that child was regenerated at the age of six but we don't know. 
right? But at the age of 15, that child is ready to profess his faith, and we can say, ah, humanly speaking, we can see that God made good on that sacrament. Maybe he made good on it at the moment. Well, I'm infant, I, you know, John the Baptist was in his mother's womb, and the Spirit filled him, so God can do that. But humanly speaking, we'd say, okay, he was baptized as an infant, 15 years old, he professes his faith, God was faithful. He made good on that sacrament. So the first pillar is the identification between baptism and circumcision. The second pillar is the continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant administrations. This is Julia's question. I think it was Julia. It's the same covenant of grace. That's the second pillar. These two rites are identified, and it's the same covenant. There are different administrations. You have Moses, Sinai. Here's the Old Testament administration. You have Jesus, the New Covenant administration. But it's the same covenant of grace. Abraham, we're told by Paul, is the father of all who believe. Makes no difference if you're Old Covenant or New Covenant, right? That's what he says. He's the father of all who believe. Adam, Noah, Moses, Abraham himself. He's the father of all who believe. He's the paradigm for belief in the coming Messiah or the risen Christ. Either way. In Christ, the Old Covenant found its fulfillment. And in Christ, the New Covenant finds its establishment. Same covenant. The Old Testament and the New Testament churches are the same. It's the same body professing the same faith, saved by the same Christ. If we deny that, we become dispensationalists, saying that the Old Testament people of God were different in kind from the New Testament people of God. You see that? We're the same body of Christ. Jesus saved Old Testament, New Testament believers alike. Ruthann? Friends from other denominations I hear often say things like, well, the Holy Spirit, they didn't have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Or, um, I mean, that's the, the, the main point where I think people get confused and, and to look at this church. I don't think that I understood right. that everyone, Old Testament, New Testament, was given faith by the Holy Spirit. Because of passages that say, well, because the Holy Spirit had not yet been Given. Right. Things like that in the New Testament, little... Yeah, they're comparative passages. You're right. <clears throat> that, that by comparison, it's as if the Holy Spirit had not been given because it's so profuse in the New Testament. But he had to be given. If they're dead in sin as we are. Dead people can't believe. It's only when given life can a dead sinner trust in Christ. So David had to have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Right? Doesn't take a special office to be dead in sin. Doesn't take a special office to be dead in sin. Right. Old Testament church was predominantly Jewish. New Testament church, chiefly Gentile, but it's the same church. Under the Old Covenant, the sign and seal of righteousness by faith was applied to infants of believers. So the original sign of infant incorporation into the visible church was circumcision at eight days old. We know that. Nobody disputes that. Our Baptist brothers would not dispute that. We don't dispute it. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. 
throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. There's that overarching promise, the promise that's fulfilled in the covenant of grace. If that promise is fulfilled in Genesis 17:7 by the sign of circumcision, we do believe the sign of baptism signifies the same thing. So it's the same covenant. God promised to be Abraham's God and to be the God of his children after him. If he promised it to Abraham and his biological descendants, well, then we have to say that he promised it to Abraham and his spiritual descendants. God was saying that the children of believers would in some special sense belong to him. That's the question. What sense do these children belong to God? Unlike the unbeliever's children, they're set apart in some way. They belong to him in some way, and he marks them out as his in some way. He's he's concerned not only with believers, but with their children. Which of you parents would care less if God didn't love your children? You love your children. You want them to be under God's fatherly care and concern. And God says, yes, precisely, I made it that way. I chose you, and not just you. I'm setting apart your children. It would break my heart if I thought God was unconcerned about my children. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting, and it's righteousness to children's children. See that, Psalm 103? To children's children. He has concern for your children. Yes, did you have a question? Comparative statement. In some ways, he loved Esau, right? He blessed him. He had a, he, 12 princes came from him. But in terms of the covenant of grace, in terms of eternal salvation, comparatively, it was as if it was hate because Jacob, he gave all the blessings of the covenant of grace. Yeah. So circumcision and baptism both serve as initiatory sacraments. They serve the same role, so they're applied by the same principle. Circumcision was applied to infants of the Old Covenant believers at eight days. Baptism is to be applied to children of the New Covenant believers in infancy. We are children of Abraham. That's what Paul calls us, children of Abraham, the father of the faithful. So our children enjoy the same privilege as his. As his biological descendants were included in the covenant, so his spiritual descendants, I think, are also included. Why would he give a privilege to those within the more restrictive Mosaic administration and then withdraw it from the more inclusive and blessed New Covenant administration. It doesn't make any sense. It was initiatory right then, back now. Through the sign and seal of the covenant, God pledges to be a God to us and our offspring after us. Peter picks up on this when he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why, Peter? Because the promise is for you and for your children. He's picking up on Genesis 17:7, and he's applying that to the New Testament church. If the more restrictive Old Covenant included infants, would not the more inclusive New Covenant include the same category of people? It was applied to males, now it's applied to both genders. Let me just follow up with this final. 
the main Baptistic argument that's I, that I've heard, the New Testament does not explicitly require it. Yes, Old Testament, eight days. New Testament, it's never said. Agreed. No Paedo-Baptist is going to argue that. You're right. It is not explicitly required. But it is implicitly required. And this is the nub. We believe that by good and necessary consequence, a doctrine can be established. Our first chapter points out it does not depend on explicit statements. The Trinity is an example. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of one substance, equal in power and glory. Nowhere. We believe that to be a true doctrine based upon implication or good and necessary consequence. Circumcision was applied to infants. Baptism is its New Testament equivalent. For infant baptism to be forbidden, we believe, would require an explicit statement discontinuing the process. Think of it. For thousands of years, the Jews included their infants. And then all of a sudden, in the fulfillment of the covenant of grace, God is going to... No more infants. Well, if that were the case, we'd want an explicit statement, wouldn't we? Makes sense to me. For to change the way he administered the covenant for centuries would demand an explicit statement. We don't have it. It was assumed. It was understood. Just like elders. Elders in the Old Testament, they understood. Appoint elders. Where do you get that from? Well, it's assumed. It's from the Old Testament practice. Centuries we've had elders. The new covenant method of initiation to the covenant follows that of the old believer, sign, children. The churches are identical in substance and the signs operate in the same way. How could God exclude a category of people from the new covenant that was included in the old? Having children in the church is a privilege. You and I both know that. Why would this privilege be denied new covenant believers? John? Yeah, I think so. And again, it gets back to this idea that it's, it's my devotion to Christ rather than God's faithfulness to me. And those two very, they're good perspectives, but the one I think is more biblical because it's primary, God's faithfulness to me. And my love for him is secondary. But I think our Baptist brothers switch that. So, yeah. Melissa? Yeah, like, right. Right. Yeah. What she was saying is it's God's declaration to us, not so much our declaration to God. And God has dealt with households throughout the entire history of redemption. He does deal with households, thankfully, families. That's right. It's a very good point. Well, oh. So the question is, if you were baptized by unbelieving parents... 
Is it wrong to go to be baptized now? Well, and it's a good question. It has nothing to do with your parents. I mean, if they were church members, professing Christians, maybe they were nominal, but part of a true Protestant church, and you were baptized by the church, it's legitimate. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the piety or the intention of your parents or the minister. You might have an apostate minister baptizing you. But if he's part of a true church, he's authorized to apply the sacrament. Yes. It is wrong. Well, if, you, if done out of ignorance, I, I sinned by being baptized by my Sunday school teacher in his bathtub. Just the two of us. So I'm right there with you. <laughs> right? I, we do things out of ignorance, and God is so gracious. So... Don't sweat it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, out of love and mercy and infinite wisdom, desire to set us apart as belonging to Christ, and you do take an interest in our children. Thank you for that, and please now prepare us for worship, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.